0: Hello and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy folks. Today we will be talking about scary stories to tell in the dark. We'll be talking about the film, we'll be talking a little bit about the horror genre today and horror that's targeted at different audiences and we'll also be talking a bit about the films that Guillermo del Toro has produced as he did with scary stories. And then we will be finishing it up with the return of reader hot takes. We asked you to leave us a review on our iTunes page, uh, along with your hottest movie-related take, and that we would read those on the air. And a bunch of you responded, so we're not even going to get into all of them in this episode. We will in the future. If you left a hot take, it will be responded to. Don't worry about that. But just today, we're going to get into just a few of them, otherwise the show would run on and on and on. So... But this is the first installment of Reader Hot Takes, and we're very excited. But looping back to Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, um, I saw the film last week. I really enjoyed it. I, I was a little nervous, too, because uh, CBS Films and Lionsgate, they had this, the press screening on a Wednesday. The embargo lifted like at 1 in the morning Eastern. I was like, oh, they're trying to bury this. And nope, they just don't know that the film is good. And so (laughs) that's a shame because the film is like really entertaining and it really knows its audience. And it's the kind of film that if I had seen it when I was like 10 or 11, really would have scared the crap out of me. And I, I like the fact that it exists. Not only is it skillfully made, but it's age appropriate for a certain audience that is getting into horror but doesn't like if I was a parent, I would not want my, like my 10 year old to watch it, but I would want them to like, I'd be okay with them watching scary stories. So it's, it's a kind of film that I think fills a really underserved niche and does it well. And Adam, you saw it this past, uh, you actually saw it yesterday. I Uh, saw it on Monday. So what, what'd you you think about it?
1: I liked it a lot too. Um, I was pretty pleasantly surprised by it. I mean, uh, the the source material the the three books scary stories to tell in the dark and then more scary stories to tell in the dark um, uh, were kind of mainstays from my childhood I was really Same. fixated on the drawings and the art in particular um, it was the combination of the spooky stories but then that that artwork that was just uh, really chilling so I, I think they nailed bringing those images to life in a way that was spooky and scary, but I think the um, – I mean a film adaptation of this has been in the works for a long time, but I think the, the, the nut that they cracked – and I think it was Guillermo del Toro that cracked it because he's the co uh, – he's credited it with a story by credit um, – but that uh, the idea not to do it as an anthology, but to make the stories an actual book of stories that come to life when you read them. Um, I think that was really smart. And sorry, go ahead. No, no, no.
0: I just say no, I totally agree because it also provides a really strong spine. To the yeah. story. So you do have a, an overarching narrative, but rather than like an anthology where there's like a framing device that just sort of bookends the anthology, what you have here is you have characters that have their own arcs and that you're, you care about and you're following them along, but then the stories themselves sort of provide the set pieces of the film.
1: Yeah. And you could do it as like a limited series anthology type deal where each episode is a different story, but that I think that would get kind of old because like, things don't turn out well for any of the protagonists in those stories so every week you would just watch some poor helpless soul turn into a scarecrow or something um so i like you said i like the idea that that you do have characters to follow through throughout the um the whole film there's a really great mythology that i thought they built um the actual scary stories to tell in the book and the dark book in the movie is written by a girl named sarah bellows who was famously kind of locked away by her family and no pictures exist of her. Um, and she was just this kind of uh, myth or like urban legend. And so the scary stories to tell in the dark have be- exist as a myth in the context of the film. Like the characters know the story, the big toe and they um, are familiar with uh, you know, the story of Harold, the scarecrow, I think Um so I thought that was really smart to, to kind of let the characters mirror the audience um, experience of like, oh, I'm familiar with these stories too. Um, but the thing that I, that I think elevated it for me for the most part was the practical effects, which mm. each individual – monster looks really terrific and spooky and scary. Um, and the production design, like the, the world building of this film I thought was really great. And that's not necessarily an easy thing to do with a period film. Like you can throw some fifties cars in and put people in poodle skirts and say, um, you know, we're in the fifties or, 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 you know, we're in the sixties now. Um, you know, and I was a little afraid that that might be what happening, what might be what was happening in this film when it opened with, uh, you know, Richard Dixon, um, which I thought like, oh, that's just kind of window dressing. But that actually turns out to be a potent recurring theme throughout the film that speaks to the film's larger themes. Um but it really felt like you were kind of following these kids along in 1968 in a small Pennsylvania town, which is the best kind of horror movies and and the best kind of um, you know, I'm a sucker for those kinds of period films that take place in the 50s and 60s, especially kind of scary stories uh, or horror films that take place in that period, and I think it's 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 harder than it looks to pull that off convincingly where you feel like the the world feels lived in. And I think that uh, they pulled that off really well here.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I think the 1968 setting was a real... Uh, I mean, it's one of those things where, yeah, it helps you so that no one has to like Google Sarah Bellows and just be like, oh, let me just tell you about Sarah Bellows. She turned up on Google. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I mean, I think you can do that sort of present day stuff. It doesn't necessarily... It's not automatically bad, but I think when you take away those modern tools, it puts the audience more at sea because they're like, well, they're in 68. They can't do X, Y, and Z. And part of this film's momentum comes from trying to solve the mystery. And so yeah. you don't want to... you. What you want to do is make sure that there are obstacles in their way to make it so that they actually have to, you know, sneak into a mental hospital and find records and, like, listen to a wax cylinder. Like, it's, it's doing things that are for like understandable, but it takes the audience it it, it throws up the, the barrier to the audience in a good way of the audience being like, well why don't they just do this? Why don't they just do that? And that sort of that know it all sensation that can come like when you're watching a horror film, like I would be smarter than this. And I think taking away those tools that we have really helps further make you empath- they help you empathize with these characters because you are trying to figure out what to do just as they would
1: yeah well and it, it's also really interesting because you're building a horror fi- a period horror film in a world in which stranger things exists which is I mean it sounds silly because stranger things itself was based off of like a million other 80s horror films um, and like you know stand by me exists uh, and ET. But I feel like the omnipresence of Stranger Things of the last few years has made just the simple image of kids in a period setting riding their bikes down a street feels immediately Stranger Things-esque. And so I thought just simple, like, blocking. Um, you know, the, there's a sequence in this film where the kids are all going to this haunted house and they're on bikes. But I thought it was really smart of the director not to frame them as – it doesn't feel like I, – I, forget to mention it as well, but it doesn't feel contrived or familiar, even though it is something it is an image that you probably uh, have seen very recently in any number of other films that are trafficking in nostalgia. So uh, I thought that was it. It just showed to me that there's a very keen awareness of the world in which they're making this movie, and they're trying to make it stand out and in that way make the characters feel real and lived in and not simply caricatures or just a, oh, yeah, I too remember riding my bike. Um, with right. my friends. Well,
0: and I think that Scary Stories kind of has a one-up on something like Stranger Things or, or even It in the sense that those films are using nostalgia as a juxtaposition for their horror. So look at the comforting images of nostalgia and then I'm going to throw something horrific at you to disrupt your comfort. Yeah. Whereas... What I like about scary stories is that it's like, no, the world has always been kind of scary. Like the Nixon stuff is there to be like, no, there have been terrible people in power before. And oh, you know, the racism that Ramon encounters, like this is not, these aren't new things. And I'm going to make you live in a world that has its own scary stories outside of Sarah Bello's book. And I think that by sort of making those horrors part of the 1968 setting. and makes it feel more real and it makes the film feel more mature and thoughtful rather than just assuming like everything was great in 1968. Everything was fine until the present day. And I just think that level of recognition helps, you know, balance things out. And like you shows, you can still have like scary monsters, but also I think it sort of deepens the dread by pointing out horrors that aren't as easily solved by just making nice with the ghost or whatever you have to do to solve the, the horrors, that the, the supernatural side of it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's underlined by, I think even the cinematography is um, subjective to put the viewer in the point of view of the kids. You're not an objective observer kind of watching these things happen. You're supposed to feel as though you are in this world with these kids. And I think that I, th- I think that comes across extremely well.
0: Yeah. These are definitely characters we're meant to empathize with that. We're not, we're not simply watching like, Ooh, which next, which jerk is going to get knocked off next, you know, like yeah. even, even like, you know, the, the bratty older sister archetype, you know, we're not like, I hope she gets it, but there, it does sort of yeah. walk that type rope of like allowing you to have those giddy thrills. Um, because we do hope that the jock bully gets it. <laughs> yes. And boy does he. Um yeah. but it it allows yeah, that
1: actor in something else before and I can't remember um what else but uh what was it? I don't know. Uh, I know he's in like The Walking Dead, I think, but I don't know. Right. Anyway,
0: um yeah, I I just like that it's a film that like it it allows you to feel scared but in a way that doesn't, it it doesn't make you feel bad. And again, I, that's why I sort of compared this film to a film like It, whereas It also is really scary, but it doesn't have that sort of dread or sort of nastiness to it. Uh, both films are kind of like a roller coaster. It's just for It, you have to be a little taller to ride it.
1: Yeah, that's uh, and I had heard um, from other people, not complaints necessarily, but saying that the the film straddles a weird line in that the kid stuff is very much kid oriented, but then the um, horror set pieces are are kind of too terrifying for kids that age. Mm. I would disagree with that. I mean, the jangly man is pretty terrifying. <laughs> the jangly man maybe crosses that line a tiny bit into getting into like. Um, just really like upsetting horror mm-hmm. graphically, um, but the rest of it I feel is is not not tame. Like the scares are genuine, and and it is a genuinely scary movie. I think that the uh, the horror set pieces are really well crafted. And you know I'm 31 years old, and yeah. this is the film that's. You know, told from the perspective of kids and supposedly to be a little more kid friendly, but it still scared the hell out of me at, at certain parts. So right. um I think it's pretty effective.
0: Yeah, I think it is age appropriate as well. I mean, it's like they're, they're, it's not particularly violent. And even when it is violent, it's bloodless. Yeah. Um It's not a film that, that relishes gore. Um, but it knows how to be scary by building tension and, you know, building dread and having ooky looking monsters that are just sort of memorably crafted and sort of bringing those designs from the book to life. Um, I think it, it, it did a pretty outstanding job with that.
1: But even the best, like I think, when I was a kid, like even the the horror films that I saw, um, kind of growing up, that would be "quote unquote" kid friendly, something like um, you know the Monster Squad or the Frighteners. Like, there's genuinely upsetting things. In the Frighteners ones. is kid friendly. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's an R rated film, my my dude. <laughs> is it? It is. Well, blame uh, Haley Fouch's list for the best horror movies for kids and scaredy cats. Yeah. I mean, what... I wouldn't say it's like the scariest, but it's an R-rated film. <gasps> I mean, I definitely saw it when I was a kid. and it re- I saw it when I was a kid,
0: too, but because my grandmother just didn't care that the film was rated R.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying it's marketed to kids, but because it's kind of like a little goofy in tone. It and is goofier.
0: Yes, there's... I agree with that. I would think of something like the, a film that's like kind of scary for kids, even though it's kind of bloodless. is like something like The Witches which will, yeah. like, mess you up. Yeah, that messed me up as
1: well, when they take their masks off. and uh, Yeah. That was instantly iconic for me and something that uh, I could never get out of my head. Um, so I guess maybe my, my problem with the Frighteners was that I was just too young to see it. But the the whole notion of, like, serial killers, the the Frighteners, like, made me physically ill. Mm. Like, it made my stomach churn because of the graphic violence that was happening. Um, yeah, now that I remember it, there's uh, something like a box knife, you know? And uh, a lot of blood in that one, huh?
0: Yeah, Jeffrey Toombs gets his head blown off. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. That's right. But it's they're all, they come back and go, as they it goes, come back as ghosts.
0: Yeah, no, it's fine. No, it, it straddles a very specific line. It's kind of a place that I wish <laughs> Peter Jackson would go back to. To be perfectly honest. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: But in any event, but even um, Monster Squad, I think, it, and it's yeah, Monster to,
0: Squad is yeah,
1: it's owing to the practical effects that those um, you know ghoulish. Graphic creatures are scary Like the Mm -hmm. you know the wolfman is Snarling and the mummy's you know Coming apart at the seams Um, So I and I think That's that's something that this film really gets right Is that it knows that the practical effects Always make it so much scarier like It's harder it's more expensive at Times um, it's trickier To pull off but I think it's just far more effective Yeah
0: no I think It's I, I agree it's it's more effective And I think sort of Yeah when it comes to Horror Unless it's, you know, there's really... I'm trying to think of, like, why would you need to go CG? And I'm kind of coming up with nothing. (laughs) Yeah. Like, unless you're, like... Like, again, even the Jangly Man was done by a contortionist. And, like, there there are some CG aspects to, like, tie it together, but it's not a CG character. And I think the more CG you pile on, the less intimidating it becomes, like... Uh, And a good example, I think, would probably be to tie it back to Guillermo del Toro. I think in Crimson Peak, that's Doug Jones as sort of the monsters in that film. But there's been so much CGI rendering around him that they're not as scary as they could be.
1: And I kind of saw this film as Guillermo del Toro trying to rectify that mistake because Mm. I think he thought that audiences would understand that it was practical effects. But I think there was so much... Uh, Rejiggering after the fact Um, Like there's a little bit of speed ramping in there And they're just adding a little bit here and there um, Kind of enhancing with CG Right Um, uh, But like Del Toro knew that like the bones of it Was an actor doing the thing But like as just a casual observer I just registered that as, oh, it's a CG ghost. Uh, And it was not. So I think that he kind of learned that lesson the hard way and uh, kind of tried to right that wrong on this one. Um, I mean, the fact of the matter is, I mean, you see any Marvel movie, uh, Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, whenever they're, you know, hot and heavy doing punches, flying at Thanos, you're watching an animated movie. Those are entirely CG recreations of those characters. That's not even Chris Evans having to do mocap. Like it's just, you can animate this character to do whatever you want it to do. Which um,
0: and, and, and to be fair, like it's, it, it's honestly like a safer thing. It's a safer yeah. thing to do. Oh, like, for sure. I mean, there's a great video online. You can watch of like sort of how they created like a CGI Hugh Jackman for Logan just for like a car crash scene.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, and when you're dealing with humans and stuff like that, but it's just to say that like we've gotten to a place in in blockbusters where it's become commonplace to just uh, it's called digital replacement uh, mm-hmm. or digital double, um, is what they call them. Um, and so that's gotten so good that you could conceivably create the gnarliest looking monster you ever wanted on screen, but I think there's something to be said for um, those practical effects, registering and and you know something in your head. I think Jangly Man comes the close to towing the line. I mean, there are obviously are uh, a few bits of CG here and there um, necessary because it's a corpse uh, assembled of like disembodied parts but uh, I think you like for the most part you register like that's an actual dude who's you know just being super creepy right exactly
0: yeah I think it, I think it works really well and I think um, the director Andre over doll I think it's yeah name? I think over doll yeah. um, did a did a really great job uh, yeah tying this all together um and uh hopefully they get to make another one of these
1: yeah i will say the the main criticism i had and i'm curious if this is why i i looked it up because i assumed like i was like oh this is a pretty fun movie i bet audiences had a good time this thing got a c cinema score really wow yes. why is very bad i and, well my minor complaint is is that it doesn't feel like a complete story? Like it very much ends in a way in which it's like, all right, to be continued. Um, you know, the
0: ending to me felt like a something like a like a sort of a test, like sort of a a, a way to address a complaint of a test audience, like a maybe. test like a test audience is like, well, why isn't this addressed? And so they tack yeah. on this little coda to be like, it will be addressed later. And I yeah. and it so it feels like a lose lose situation. Like they don't want to be too much of a downer, but then. You just kind of leave things open ended, so that
1: that might be it. I mean, the the whole mythology around cerebellos the film toes this line between revealing too much and revealing just enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand that the questions are almost always more interesting than the answers, so I was pretty cool with you know what the film decided to tell you and what it decided to leave out, um, and it doesn't spoon-fiend you anything. It's not that anything is obfuscated, but it's. It's, there's not a scene where a character sits down and explains this is exactly what happened and this is how it happened and this is who was there and who they did it to. You get it in flashes and in flourishes and in, um, you know, bits and pieces of information here and yeah, there. There's
0: no long expo- exposition scene where it's
1: like, and now to tell you the legend of Sarah
0: Bellows. Yeah,
1: yeah, which maybe some audiences wanted. I think people just want their complete snack and then they want to move on. But to me, that, that if you leave questions to be pondered at the end of the film that just gives you more to think about and discuss when the movie's over right so it's more reason for me to be continuing to think about this movie long after i've seen it as opposed to you know it's like here's everything and it does it tells a complete story um from the point of view of the central characters um like the the heroes of the film and i think that's what's most important like the arc of uh i guess i think stella is her name um you know kind of coming into her own and and uh you know owning her stories i think is probably the the kind of most important through line there um but there are there are some threads that are dangling so it does feel a tad bit in the the threads dangling as it relates to the central four or five heroes of the film um was where my uh, kind of minor issue came in and so i wonder if that's where people felt a, l- a little bit robbed but uh ultimately you know I had a good time with it. Yeah, I would watch more of these.
0: I, I'm shocked that it did so poorly on its Cinema Score because it felt like yeah. it felt like just an older version of Goosebumps,
1: which got yeah. an a, which got an A. Well, but I don't think Goosebumps. I think Goosebumps didn't. it like wrap up the mythology. It's like it, yeah, Goosebumps. Was-
0: well, mm, Goosebumps has sort of like a stinger as well. Like oh, this thing wasn't addressed, but it's sort of like a fun little button. Whereas yeah. like this is like the story continues. So yeah, I guess maybe. That, but man, for that, I mean, I wasn't thrilled with the coda, but I wasn't like, oh, the, this ruins the movie for me now.
1: <laughs> no, uh-uh. Har- and I harsh, felt so satisfied audience. Yeah, I felt so satisfied with the scares and everything. Um, so, I, and I don't know if that audience is. I mean, Cinema Score measures your opening weekend audience, so I don't know if that was kids who just wanted a good scary time, or devotees of the books who were looking for more slavish. Uh, adaptation or something
0: yeah, or an audience that's like this isn't hardcore enough like it's not yeah. scary
1: enough i don't know this isn't it therefore yeah. it's bad um but for me like is uh, immediately after i saw it i was like oh yeah this will definitely be in heavy rotation on halloween for me like this will become one of my october movies to kind of put on yeah when you want to watch a spooky movie
0: it's that fun kind of you know as sam raimi called it spookablast. blast Kind of horror where you get like, you know, you get your fun giddy thrills, but you don't get that like that horrible feeling of like <laughs> yeah. like existential dread and just sadness and murder. Sort of no. like fun and uplift it's like Sleepy Hollow, which is gross and scary, but like in a fun way.
1: Like Sleepy Hollow or Hocus Pocus or um Paranorman, which I thought about a lot when watching this yeah. movie. Um, maybe a little too much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there are some closed story parallels. There are definitely, yeah, they definitely got away with some stuff. <laughs> but, uh, but I love Paranorman. Yeah. Um, even Coraline, something like that. There, there's, uh, you know, I think those are pretty blast movies. Yeah.
0: And the thing is, is that like, it doesn't feel like studios still, even though horror is pretty, re- it's like a a reliably successful genre for studios. They still don't seem to know how to treat it. Like it's a film like for horror movies, usually if they do screen them for press, it'll be like where print won't even, it won't, couldn't make their deadline or like they just won't screen it at all. And I guess the assumption is just like, well, critics don't like horror films unless it's something that's like a blockbuster horror film, like on the level of it. Um, Which even then, like, it too is not screening in Atlanta until 2 days
1: before it comes out, which is weird. Which is insane because there are fan screenings starting next week. I don't understand why they're keeping it from the press for so long. I, th- there's t-
0: this the, there's this conventional wisdom I think among among studios that critics just will not go for horror films. Yeah. Um they can I, only hurt it. They can't help it. Yeah, exactly. Like a, like a, like a the critical response is only going to hurt hurt uh, horror unless it's something like elevated, like us or get out or something like, again, like it, where it's just like a big property. But for the most part, like if it's like Annabelle creation, they're like, well, this isn't going to do anything for us. And we already know who our audience is. And, you know, let's just, let's just leave it at that. Cause we're just, all we're going to do is create a divide. And I'm like, I don't know if that's necessarily true.
1: Yeah, I don't get it. Uh, I mean, the, the horror audience is, is segmented, and it feels like it's something that studios don't take seriously enough. Um... I will note, so I saw this movie, I paid to go see this movie in the theater, and almost every single preview in front of the movie was for was geared towards African-American audiences. Mm. And we know statistically, like, uh, black audiences will show up to horror movies um, pretty regularly, but it just, like, it, it felt a little like studios were just kind of segmenting, like, because it's not as if studios look at black cinema as something, like um super important to their slate or like you're you're not seeing a studio poning up the same amount of money they're giving martin scorsese to make the irishman that they're giving spike lee to make whatever he wants and i know spike lee just made a uh, a movie for netflix that he had been wanting to get off the ground for a long time but that only came after uh the success of black klansman so i don't know it there's this feeling that horror is is segmented in a way um, where the studios look at it in the same way that uh, studios segment kind of African-American geared films, which they in their eyes seem to see as something that's not, you know, they have their big blockbusters, they have their prestige dramas, and then, you know, they've segmented off these separate kinds of films that they make, they give them certain amounts of budget, Um, and I don't know from, from your perspective like what you get to review or get to see, but, you know, it seems like the films that they are prioritizing for critics to see are are largely the blockbusters they believe in and the prestige movies, and that's about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm looking through, like, sort of the last couple years of, or actually just the last 12 months, really, of horror film on Rotten Tomatoes. And, like, yeah, some of these movies were not good. And, like, but it's weird that horror, regardless of whether it's good or bad, gets treated as if they are usually not going to be good. So, like, a film like... Happy Death Day to you, which sits at sixty nine percent, is going to get treated the same way as um, let's see what else, the Nun, which is at twenty six percent. And it, to me, it's like the horror is just like any other genre. There are going to be good films that are going to be bad films. It's just weird that the studios seem to be like, well, critics are only going to dislike horror films. And I guess maybe it's because they're maybe they're cheaply made, or they just assume critics are older and therefore not as easily scared. Um, I'm not really sure why it pans out that way, but they're definitely horror is definitely treated differently um, than other genres when it comes to just screening them for critics.
1: Well, it's treated less than, and even when uh, a horror movie like Get Out is a you know worldwide phenomenon, not only when it comes time for Oscars do they not want to call it um, you know like black cinema they or uh, you know like a. a Uh, a story about African Americans, they also don't want to call it a horror movie. It's, all of a sudden it's a social thriller or it's elevated horror, whatever, elevated the f- whatever horror. the fuck that means. It's smart. It's, it's smart people horror, as opposed to what? <laughs> well, and also you never
0: yeah. use you ever heard the word elevated attached to anything else. It's not re- like when, when freaking Mad Max Fury Road came out, people were like, they weren't like, it's an elevated action film. No, it's just, it's an action film. It's awesome. But no one had to be like, I have to defend the seriousness of the action genre.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it seems like even within the horror genre, they have to segment it off. Um, like Us has to be a psychological thriller. It can't just be a horror movie.
0: And maybe that's because from a, from a studio perspective, there are some people that are just like, I don't like horror movies. I don't like being scared. I don't like it. And like that's a fair thing. Like you know if the genre is not, not for you, but then like they try to twist it. So it'd be like, well, maybe, you know, if you don't typically see a horror film – maybe you'll come see a psychological thriller. But to me, that's just a bait and switch. Like, my wife hates horror films. And I I think, you know, she wisely observes that Us is not a movie that she's probably going to like all that much. So I think just slapping a different label on it and saying, no, no, it's not horror. Us is a horror film. It's a really good horror film, but
1: it's a horror film. And we should just call it that. Yeah, I mean... And it's also a genre that is almost consistently um, financially successful.
0: Yes, because like, it, has, it doesn't cost a lot and it tends to make a lot of money.
1: Yeah. So Escape Room, which is a movie that came out this year, uh, budget of $9 million, made $155 million worldwide. Yeah. It's it's on – I think it's at – gosh. I think it's in like the top 50 films of the year so far, box office-wise. Oh, it's number 27. Um, and even the curse of La Llorona, which was considered somewhat disappointing in terms of the conjuring spinoff movies, that movie made 122 million worldwide versus a $9 million budget. Um, the reason that
0: and also the reason that Jason Blum's Blumhouse has been ridiculously successful is he makes a lot of horror films and they don't cost very much. And they make a ton of money. Like he, like he, he knows how to keep things under budget. And also like, and he knows he's going to get a good return on his investment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And when he doesn't like happy death day to you only made 28 million, which was less than the than the first movie, um, 28 million domestic, uh, which was less than the first movie. Um, Then they just kind of move on. And it's not as. Yeah, because you uh, haven't
0: sunk like 100 million dollars into it.
1: No. And it's not as if they're like embarrassed or like, oh, we're never making a movie like that ever again, because the stakes are, I think, I don't know, the stakes are lower, but they obviously want to keep quality up. Whereas you look at all of these massive blockbusters that cost so much money and the overwhelming disappointment of something like Batman versus Superman can single-handedly change the trajectory of a studio's entire slate of movies. Like right. it, it completely changed how they approached their DC superhero movies. The the Both the box office and the critical um, performance of one movie just yeah. changed everything. Whereas Blumhouse or Universal has one flop and they're like, eh, you know, we'll yeah, they,
0: make they make it so that they can weather the flops rather than betting every, betting the house on, uh, on a single film, which by the way, it still wasn't enough to get Kevin Tsujihara fired after Batman V Superman. <laughs> I know. He fucking flopped on justice league. That still wasn't <laughs> enough. It's because he was sending horny texts to an actress <laughs> that finally got him. Out. That finally got him out of there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't
1: know. It's it's very it's frustrating to see horror continually treated like this, especially in the wake of it, which should be said globally far outgrossed Justice League, which is a movie that has Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman and Flash in the same movie. Yeah, and <laughs> like, people are like, don't give a shit, but give me this fucking scary clown. Yeah, Give me the spooky clown. I want that instead. Um, and I mean, the horror genre always has ebbs and flows, but it feels like it's, it's particularly um, popular at, uh, in this point in time, the last few years. Uh, and I was curious your thoughts on it because I, I heard Adam McKay – so Adam McKay was asked, um, like, why are comedies not working anymore? Why, why is it so hard? And he discussed kind of that run um, of films where, you know, Will Ferrell and, uh, you know, John C. Riley were super popular, Ben Stiller, um, you know, Step Brothers, Anchorman, Zoolander, um, all of those kinds of films. And Adam McKay said it was when he made The House uh, with Will Ferrell and Amy Poehler that he realized like, oh, this is done. Like, this is kind of over because that film, um, you know, he wasn't he said it's not the greatest comedy he'd ever made, but he thought it was pretty solid. Um, I disagree. It's not very good. Uh, <laughs> not very, I don't know if you saw the house. I did see good. it. It wasn't very good. No, it's fine. Um, um, Jason Manzukas is really good in it. But um. yes, but he was right in that, like that film with Will Ferrell and Amy Poehler should have done better at the box office than it did. Um, and he said you know when things are so terrible in the real world people show up and um you know like he he used meet the parents as an example it's like this guy's in-laws are giving him a hard hard time like give me a fucking break like that is not a real problem right now (laughs) it's not something i can relate to that's not something i'm gonna get super invested in or upset about this is ridiculous but it got me thinking about horror and how uh you know um Sometimes, That's a weird thing I, to
0: say when, like, Anchorman, I'm sorry, just Anchorman came out, like, at the like in, like, 2004, and, like, the Bush administration, like, we were in war with Iraq. The Bush <laughs> administration was terrible, and it's like, I care about a news anchor who's not famous enough
1: <laughs> from the <laughs> 70s? <laughs> what? Although I think, I don't know. I think it's through I, the I
0: absurdity of Anchorman makes it work.
1: Yeah, and I don't want to get too deep into politics, but I I, I think that you might agree that the, the national mood is significantly worse it is it
0: is significantly harder to be like hey well also not just that but i also i think that it's in terms of also what do you have access to and there are a lot more like ways to get your laughs these days than there were in 2004 like if you need a laugh fucking just turn on twitter here's a funny gif whereas it's like hey do you want to bet money that you're gonna do you want to come all the way to the theater pay money for the in the hopes that you will laugh and that's a much harder game. That's a much bigger gamble.
1: Well, and I think right now also like it's a lot harder to be comedically invested in the lives of humans. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'll watch something like Rick and Morty or even like Bob's burgers, um, which is animated, therefore a little bit more fantastical. And that's a little bit easier to kind of fall into that world. Um, yeah. Whereas I I've some found of- the
0: same with like big mouth, like big mouth is like one of the yeah. funniest things I've watched this year.
1: Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you're watching, you know, Will Ferrell and Amy Poehler are trying to uh, make money to send their daughter to college. um, It just it it just brings in real world anxieties. (laughs) But I found the it it just feels like horror. So horror is super popular right now. Um, I I think there's something to be said for kind of not wallowing in it, but just kind of like embracing the terror, embracing the scariness, or just feeling something, feeling something very profound when you know there's a clown in the room but you don't know where he is
0: i think the appeal of horror right now is that it is controlled chaos whereas outside the world is unpredictable chaos you know we have world leaders that are clearly have dementia and they have access to nuclear weapons like that is a horror that like is so to me like immediate that I won't watch a film like Testament right now. Like I won't do it. Like I'll watch it when there are sane people in control, but I won't watch it right now. I'm like, it's too real. It's too real. But if you're like, Oh, here's a supernatural clown that gives you your fears and like blood explodes in your bathroom. Yeah. That's scary, but it's like a controlled scare. It's like a roller coaster. Yeah. And when you're on the roller coaster, as scared as you might be, you know that there have been safety checks You know that everyone goes on it and it turns out okay. And so it's the illusion of terror rather with that. So it allows you to sort of vicariously indulge in fear without letting that fear consume you. It's almost like a vaccine in some way. Like you get a little dose of the horror that sort of in a weird way makes you stronger against other
1: horrors. Unless you go see an Ari Aster movie and then your date is just ruined.
0: Oh, yeah. Then you're done.
1: (laughs) Too far, Ari. (laughs) too far (laughs) because i was thinking about oh i really liked Midsommar, but yeah that i i I couldn't shake that movie for a long time it wasn't kind of like ooh, spooky that was fun
0: i'm not Uh, a fan of his films but i would also say (laughs) like i saw hereditary and (laughs) i i get like there are images that within that film that will just not leave me
1: (laughs) yeah yeah i think i think that's right i think um I mean, that makes sense to me. And then on top of that, when you do world building or even something like get out, I think that it, even though it is tackling real world issues, um, I don't know if there's something a little bit freeing about knowing you're in the hands of someone that's going to take care of you.
0: Well, and also like, I mean, Jordan Peele just does it so skillfully. Like he is, he does it in such a way. Like he, he, he weaves in a little bit of humor. He weaves in like sort of the sort of you know, a reality to it, but it's a reality that isn't just bleakness and by, and on, and that, and really the humor in his movies makes the horror even stronger because it's not like a, sort of like a, a death march. It is something that has highs and lows that again, takes you on that sort of roller coaster ride.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that it is just going to be this monster hit when it comes out. Chapter chapter two
0: is going to be fucking in. It's going to be one of the highest-grossing films of the year.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So,
0: yeah. um, So, before we start moving to reader hot takes, let's talk a little bit about Guillermo del Toro, who is sort of, you know, one of the icons of, I would believe, 21st century horror. Even though he got his start in the late 20th century. Yeah. Um, I think he's really sort of left his stamp on the genre. And one of the things that I really respect him for is that he has used his clout with taking quote unquote elevated horror, because <laughs> you can't just say that The Devil's Backbone or Pan's Labyrinth are horror films, God forbid. Um, <laughs> and using that clout and allowing and like raising up other filmmakers. So, like, you get like J.A. Bayona, in, you know, with The Orphan Edge, or you get. Um, I forget the guy's name, but the, the director who directed The Book of Life.
1: Um, oh, yeah, Jorge Gutierrez. Jorge Gutierrez, yes. And sort What's of. And Vincenzo, Vincenzo Natale, who did Splice.
0: Right. And sort of finding these uh, other um, horror directors and giving them sort of a leg up by attaching his name, sort of like Guillermo del Toro presents and then letting them sort of un, you know weave their story. Like Del Toro is someone who has been very open where it's like if you see me at a comic convention and you want to put your short film in my hands, I will watch it. Um like you know and give you feedback. Like he's someone who's like very much is like I want to help other other creators.
1: Yeah, for sure. And he had the, you know, that brief sojourn at DreamWorks Animation where he was creatively consulting and, and producing, I think his most significant contributions were on Kung Fu Panda 3 and Rise of the Guardians, um, or maybe it was Puss in Boots and Rise of the Guardians. But, um, I don't know, he was hired on in like a pretty official role mm-hmm. to kind of oversee their films. Um it didn't necessarily go the way that people thought it would. I think that he kind of moved away from that a little bit. Obviously, he produced Mama uh, during that time, um, which, you know, now Andy Muschietti is doing it. And uh, what's he doing after that? The Flash. Yeah. So, like, huge stuff. Sure, sure he's doing The Flash, Adam. <laughs> he's the <laughs> latest director attached to The Flash. Mr. Miller will be 47 years old and still in negotiations to finally get that Flash script off the ground (laughs) it's gonna happen you guys (laughs) gonna happen um yeah I mean I I think that uh you know and and some project it seems like with every project that Guillermo del Toro produces he genuinely means it as opposed to just slapping his name on it I mean you and I sat through a comic-con panel with for don't be afraid of the dark which Guillermo del Toro co-wrote and produced Troy Nixie directed it but Guillermo del Toro did like almost all the talking on the panel (laughs) right um and it seems like he, he also had a very strong hand in scary stories to tell in the dark. Like you see the behind-the-scenes footage. He was on the set. He was helping out with the practical effects. Um, the director has spoken about how he's he had been a huge help in the editing room. So it's not like he just kind of puts his name on there and then walks away. I think he's yeah. there. And there
0: are, I mean, some, there are some creatives that do that. I, I hate to break it to you folks, but J.J. Abrams did not oversee every episode of Fringe.
1: <laughs> he probably didn't even see every episode of Fringe. Let's be honest.
0: Yeah. No. And like, and like, again, like JJ Abrams is like trying to like, you know, he's also like putting his name on things that he believes in, but I don't think he's as intimately involved as like Del Toro is. No, no, definitely not. But I like that he uses his clout to sort of, to, to get these projects made, I think, and especially something like scary stories, which is clearly in Del Toro's wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, something that he would be obvious. Like, I think he, at, when it was first announced, I think he was attached to direct and then yeah. they he passed it on to, to Overdall. Um, so I, I think it came together really well, and I'm you know, even though Del Toro is about to start moving into Nightmare Alley, uh, I'm curious to see what kind of you know producing capacity he'll continue on in.
1: Yeah, same here. I know he's producing Antlers, which is Scott Cooper's next film. Uh, it's a horror movie.
0: I'm so. torn on that one because I love Del Toro and I hate Scott Cooper. <laughs> yeah, I you. don't hate him, I just think all of his films are bad.
1: Sure, sure. So,
0: um all right. So uh, unless there's anything more to say about Del Toro, uh, do you want to move on to some reader hot takes? Let's do it. All right. So uh, as we said, so uh, we just we we are now on iTunes at Collider Weekly. So if you like this podcast, we could really use your support. If you would leave us a positive review um, with your thoughts on the podcast, we'd appreciate it. And also include your hottest take about movies. And we're going to read that on the air. We're going to read that hot take and we're going to engage with it. So let's start off with uh, a comment let, um, left by Little Fat Kids <laughs> uh, and the uh, hot take. 2007 was obviously a great year for film, but my favorite from that year is Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Incredible acting, cinematography, score, narration, and I love the way it looks at mythology and how meeting our heroes can be dangerous. Um I agree. (laughs) Like, I think it's actually, first off, I do think, I think 2007 is an underrated year for cinema. When you look at, like, 2007 had The Fountain, it had Pan's Labyrinth, it had Children of Men, it had Assassination of Jesse James. Yeah, That was a, I mean, just those four alone, that's a pretty strong It had Spider-Man
1: 3, it had Shrek the 3rd. Some of your favorites, yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> no, I agree. I think uh I mean this is obviously this is the year that No Country for Old Men, there will be blood, um you know, atonement, which is a movie I like that Matt hates. Yes. Uh Gone Baby Gone, Michael Clayton. Um, yeah, 2007 is pretty incredible. Juno, that's the year of Juno. Oh, wow. Huge year. Um, into the Wild, great year for people who just give up on life and just <laughs> keep wandering, eating berries. He didn't he didn't give up on life. <laughs> I know <like> being into. <laughs>
0: He just ate the wrong berries and he died. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's a good book. It is a good book. Um, I will say, you know, to me, a hot take regarding Assassination of Jesse James. This is when I was first starting out. uh, I was at a press junket and I was talking with some other journalists. And this guy, who was a nice guy, like I just, I disagreed with him on this take. Um, He said, and I remember this, it's like 310 to Yuma revitalized the Western and Assassination of Jesse James killed it. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. (laughs) And I'm just good. I'm just glad to know that ten years later, like Three Ten to Yuma, is all well and good. But assassination of Jesse James is clearly the better film. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember Three Ten to Yuma that much. Uh, I James mean, that Mangold. one. Yeah, that one just was just built based on uh, Christian Bale and Russell Crowe teaming up. I think was the big draw there. Yeah. And yet, uh, the
0: best performance in the film is Ben Foster.
1: Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, assassination of Jesse James is one of my favorite films of all time. Um, I would watch it more if there were a proper Blu-ray transfer there, of it. Yeah, it,
0: exactly. It's, I, it, I would really love it if, if Criterion got in touch with Warner Brothers and been like, your, your, your edition is less than good. Let us restore it. Let us give it an edition that people will really go for.
1: It's so it's frustrating right
0: now in your library.
1: It's one of the most beautiful films ever made and it just looks so shitty. So it just kind of kills me every time I put that Blu-ray on, but, yeah. uh, but, I mean, the the score by Nick Cave is incredible. Brad Pitt, I think, gives a really tremendous performance in that movie. It's very thoughtful, very surprising. But it was a film that uh, that was not the movie that a lot of people were expecting. And no. so I know a lot of no. people who hated that movie.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't know what to expect going in other than I had heard good things about it. Um, not from the person I mentioned, but uh, I, I, I had heard good things and I was really, really wowed by it.
1: Yeah, I think people went in kind of expecting uh, – Like a train movie? heist
0: movie? Like, Well, did Ali- you ever see the
1: movie American Outlaws? No. Colin Farrell as Jesse James? Nope. You know? <laughs> Allie Larder's in it too. I saw it. Cool. Uh, it's fine. But, right. it, you know, it just like makes it all, you know, like, kind of more like Tombstone or whatever. Sure. It's like badasses being badass in the Western
0: West. Western badasses. Yeah. All right. Now here here's a hot take that's going that's going to singe. Ya. All right, a uh, hot take. When it comes to superhero trilogies, The Dark Knight Rises is a better film than Captain America: Civil War. Ooh, interesting. Interesting. Okay, so I I actually so Captain America: Civil War is a film that I don't think has aged particularly well. Um, it's a film that gets weaker every time I watch it. Every time I pop it in, I'm like, there are more things about this movie. I don't like I, the first time I saw it, I'm like, this is really well done. I really like this movie. And then just every subsequent viewing, I'm like, it's feeling a little long. I don't care about this thing. It's not well shot. I don't like, there's a lot that starts falling away about it. That being said, at least I've had an interest in revisiting it. Whereas dark night rises, I think has always been pretty bad.
1: Yeah, I did not like Dark Knight Rises when I first saw it. Um, Still not super crazy about it. My hot take is that Captain America Civil War is not a Captain America movie. You can say it is. You can say it's from his perspective. You can say his name is in the title. It is not a Captain America movie. If it were a Captain America movie, the reveal at the end would not be played as a reveal. You would know as the audience member what Captain America knows, which would raise the dramatic stakes. Well, you do know what Captain America knows. That Bucky is the one who killed his father. Yeah, it's in Winter Soldier. That's they. That's revealed in the Winter Soldier. Yes, yeah, when they when
0: they go in and the um the uh, uh little mach- the arm the Arnim Zola machine tells them what um uh what Hydra has been up to. And one of the clippings is Howard Hydra killed Howard Stark.
1: Hmm. I don't, that doesn't, that doesn't ring a bell to me. So. It's, I mean, you can check me on it. It's no, true. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that must to flown over my head. Yeah. But the, the I mean, to I'm, to I'm not disagreeing with you. War. I
0: think it is as a Captain America film. It's not like at the level of the first two. It's clearly too spread out to be a Captain America film. I agree with well, your larger thesis.
1: Sure. I just, it, it just feels like in, in Civil War, it's played too much as it has to be also Tony's movie because mm-hmm. he's a co-star in the film. Um, And maybe I'm just misremembering because I haven't seen it in a long time. But I find like the last time I watched it, like there were parts of that movie that are thrilling and fantastic. And then there were long stretches of that movie that are so boring because it's taking itself so seriously. It really wants to be a super serious movie. Whereas at least Dark Knight Rises is trying to be serious the whole time. <laughs> like Christopher Nolan has always been self-serious.
0: Right. Um, but you know, it's funny. He goes, he tries to be so serious that Dark Knight Rises ends up being kind of
1: silly. Dark Knight Rises is low-key hilarious.
0: It is low. Like I love the fact that like how does Batman like if I I have to explain is like, so Batman, you know, Bane beats Batman. First off, the Bane voice is hilarious. <laughs> Uh, Jeremy Slater, who was the showrunner on The Exorcist, d- once described it as "It sounds like a gay cartoon walrus," <laughs> and I've, I can't see it. Oh, I I was raised in the darkness. Like it is, like it is a gay cartoon walrus. Um, but like the other fact of it is, is like so. Bane beats Batman, and then Batman beats Bane. And what changed other than Batman did more pushups and had his bat had his like back fixed.
1: By like well, rope. And the timeline of that movie makes no sense because Batman's like stuck in a cave and then like two scenes later, oh, he's in Gotham City now. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? Well, and even the ending, like it tries to have
0: it both ways where it's like like that film clearly needs Batman to die. Like that is the only way to end that film is Batman yeah. dies. Um, and then it's like, but maybe he didn't because there was an escape pod on the thing that was fixed. Oh, he's not dead. And which is just kind of like a, a cop out that the film doesn't need. But my, I think my largest issue with Dark Knight Rises is it furthers a theory of Batman that just doesn't fit with the character, which is that Batman is an, an egalitarian notion, which is that anyone could be Batman. And it's like we've had two films saying absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not anyone can be Batman. Like Spider-Man is an egalitarian hero because anyone could have been bitten by that spider. That is an egalitarian hero and what you choose to do with it. And he and still at the end of the day, Spider-Man is facing real world problems. That is an egalitarian superhero. That's why Spider-Verse works so freaking well. Mm-hmm. Batman is not a egalitarian hero. He went to the middle of fucking nowhere and trained with assassins. <laughs> He's a fucking billionaire. There's nothing egalitarian about Batman. And it's okay that it's not egalitarian, but don't pretend like anyone could be Batman. In fact, the fact that you're saying it makes me wonder how no one figured out it was Bruce Wayne sooner. That's how bad it is.
1: But his middle name is Robin.
0: Anyway, I'm sorry. I feel so bad for Swarmaking52 because he's like, I have a hot take. I like Dark Knight Rises. And I'm like, let me tell you why you're
1: wrong, Swarmaking52. I will Um, say, I really like Anne Hathaway as Catwoman in that movie. I
0: like her a lot. Yeah, she is a highlight of that film. Uh, And I don't mean to, like, again, King 52 thank you for saying it. We're not trying to trash on you. We're just engaging with the hot take.
1: Um, Well, I also don't think the villain, because, like, Bane is not an interesting villain. And then when it's revealed at the end, spoiler alert, that Talia Al Ghul is the real villain. You get her as a villain for, like, seven minutes, and then it's over. And it's like, okay, that would have been interesting to dive into at some point. (laughs) And it also is the, it's part of that trend of like
0: retcons that like, I was behind it the whole time. It was me. I'm tied into your past. And it's like, don't care. Don't care. Don't, don't do that. Yeah. It's also like we boned and now I'm, you're trying to kill you. It's like, don't you feel awkward? (laughs) I guess.
1: I don't know. (laughs) But yeah, Anna Hathaway is very good in that movie. Yeah.
0: Uh, all right, one more, one more, and then we'll we'll get to the to the other um, hot takes uh, in the next episode. Um, the hot take comes from Grimplexidon, and his hot take is Rocket Man is not just one of the best music biopics of the last few years, but all time. Taron Egerton gave the best performance in his career and solidified himself as a top talent. Not enough people talked about this movie. I want to know what you guys thought of it. Uh, I loved Rocket Man. I loved it. I expect I went in expecting to like it. I'm like, oh, this looks pretty good. And I was like, this is great. And I'm not even like a diehard Elton John fan, but I was like, this is the way that music biopics need to be told. Because even though it has like your standard sort of rise-fall redemption arc, it's done in such a way that it feels unique and honest to the the central figure. And I, I agree that Edgerton is incredible. Um, he's singing the music he's, he's inhabiting the character of Elton John. He's not relying on any thesis to do the work for him. Um, he, it's just, it's a great performance in a film that I feel has a real kinship with Elton John rather than just exploiting his name to being like, I too, like the music of Elton John. I think it is actually, it cares deeply about the character and, and the person and, and his struggle. And I, I feel that really made rocket man come alive.
1: I also think the Harlan Williams astronaut comedy Rocket Man is underrated. God damn you. (laughs) (laughs) I have not seen Terran Edgerton's Rocket Man. I have seen the Harlan Williams Rocket Man many, many times. Where he farts in the suit and the suit gets
0: bigger. I found out today there is a 20th anniversary edition of that Blu-ray. Like someone (laughs) counted 20 years. It's like, you know what time? time it is. It's time to honor Rocket
1: Man starring Harlan Williams. My friend and I were trying to buy it on DVD, but it was freaking out of print like 15 years ago or whenever. Well, get, uh, now you can get it on Blu-ray, my friend. I it know. came out on
0: Blu-ray last
1: year. It's so silly, but it's, I saw it a lot uh, and laughed a lot when I saw it. But uh, yeah, I haven't seen Rocket Man yet. I look forward to seeing it at some point. So
0: well, it'll it's it's now on digital, and it'll be on Blu-ray in a, in a couple of weeks, I believe. So Hooray! if you haven't seen Rocket Man uh, yet, please put it on your radar. It's a film that. Um, I'll just put it this way. If Bohemian Rhapsody can make what? $900 million <laughs> by being utter fucking garbage. Uh, you know, rocket man should make like 1.8 billion and you should give Taron Egerton, as my wife pointed out two Oscars because he's way better than Rami Malek is in Bohemian Rhapsody. So <laughs> just pointing that out. All right. okay, right. That does it for reader hot takes this week. Uh, we will have more of those in the next episode. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.